Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast, where I'm joined by Leonardo at Invest Quotes on both Twitter and Common Stock. We get into his history as an investor, what he looks for in certain companies, uh, how he's dealing with this certain macro times, what it's like to be an investor in Spain, and much, much more. We also dive into two of his holdings, what he likes and dislikes, and then we get into a very, very special food review at the end. Um, So uh, be sure to stick around for the entire thing so you could get all of that. And as always, both myself and my guest are not financial advisors. So please, please, please do not take anything we say as financial advice. It is strictly our opinion and our opinions only. And so, like I said before, not financial advice, not financial advice, not financial advice. Now let's get into the show. Whoosh. What's up, everybody? I am back with another edition of the Sunday Scary Stock Talk podcast. But before we get started, I want to give a special shout out to our sponsor, Financial Stock Data at financialstockdata.com. You can find them there and get a full month free of their premium service by using the promo code GCI, like Green Candle Investments. They've got a lot of great things that you can use to analyze all kinds of stocks, almost every single company look at all the different uh, valuations and metrics. Uh, a lot of great stuff in there. They also have a watch list um, and some other cool features. I actually had Steve on the podcast last week. So if you want to hear about those features more in detail, be sure to tune that in. But this week, I've got a very special guest, Leonardo at Invest Quotes. Uh, Leonardo, how are you doing today? Good, good. It's actually uh, Leandro. It's kind of a strange name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my bad, my bad. Um, so we got kind of introduced first through the stock market game. And uh, yeah, you had, a, you had a great pitch. I believe you made it to the finals. Is that correct? Yep. Yes. Yeah, I think that, that when, when you were there, I pitched uh, ADN, I think. So. Yeah. yeah, you did. So yeah, it was a great pitch. And uh, a lot of insight there, so I wanted to get you on. But um, first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and like how did you kind of uh, you know get started into investing? Okay, so I studied economics uh, in university, and I started reading. Well, I had several uh, investing courses, nothing too serious, to be honest, and. I started reading on on my own about uh, investing, um, about Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch. Like I don't probably like ninety percent of the people start um, going into investing, and then I started um, investing in index funds. Uh, but then I I kept reading about investing. I actually had the feeling that the more I read about investing, the more difficult it seemed. So the more safer I was uh, on index funds. But then I, I also started to read about market sentiment and how the market can go to both extremes, both to euphoria and, and to panic. And I thought that uh, I actually liked Invent, like analyzing individual companies. So I decided to start uh, investing in, in individual companies. Uh, I also have still my index funds because I know that like I, I run a diversified portfolio and a large part of it is uh, just index funds that 
are obviously very diversified. And that's how I started. And, and that's why I do it now full time, because I actually uh, love uh, analyzing individual companies. So that's awesome. So it seems like you kind of have always been interested in, you know, investing or maybe some something along those lines by, you know, studying economics. Um, so is there something that uh, you think that you could kind of point back to, like, you know, growing up, is there like, you know, maybe your parents are investors or like have some sort of invest investments or something along those lines that kind of triggered you or were you just always kind of interested in the concept of, of money? Like what kind of got you to the point where you're like, okay, you know, this investing thing seems, seems pretty cool. I want to start looking into it. No, it was kind of on my own because uh, my parents are doctors and in Spain, it's not so common to see uh, people investing in stocks. Uh, stocks here have a very bad reputation uh, with everything that happened in the, in, during the global financial crisis. Uh, I actually think that the, the Spanish index without dividends reinvested it's actually lower than in the year 2008 still. So people just see stocks like a way of losing money, not fighting in inflation. Um, so I started on my own because I was curious outside of my, um, of the several topics I, I had in university about investing, but nothing around me like pointed to investing, neither my friends or, or my family. Yeah, so it seems like just kind of like self, uh, you know, fulfilling, I guess, which is pretty cool. Um, so you mentioned it, uh, you know, before, but when you first started investing, you started reading into like Warren Buffett and some of these other big time investors, which seems kind of common because, you know, Warren Buffett, I, he might be the most famous just straight investor, you know, of all time uh, globally. And, uh, you know, obviously very well known and everything like that. So do you take anything that you've learned from him, um, you know, maybe are, would you consider yourself like a value investor or something along those lines? Um, and uh, yeah, did you, uh, what did you do to kind of uh, start researching? Did you just see his strategies or did you just kind of, uh, I guess, look at his mindset? Well, I, from Warren Buffett, I think what I take is uh, his mindset because I, I don't consider myself a, a value investor. Well, I, I think the, Everyone, if you do investing correctly, you should be a value investor, so to say, because you are technically uh, buying something that's worth more for uh, a lower price. Um, but I, I think it's his mindset and his ability to to focus on, on the company and not the, the stock price. I think that when you buy a company because you have done all your research and you think that the company is reasonably, uh, reasonably valued, uh, focusing on the stock price is not really worth it because uh, the stock price will move wherever, but the company is still executing as uh, independently from the stock price. Well, there there are obviously some some exceptions. For example, if you have uh, stock based compensation or or whatever, that kind of your expenses can be uh, tied to the to the stock price. But uh, that that is what I think I. I got from him and also from um, investors such as Peter Lynch that follow more or less like the same mindset of not focusing on the on the stock price and focusing on the company. And that's actually what I think 
gives investors a very good edge over others because I think 90% of the stock market is focusing on daily price, price moves. And actually very few, less than people think, I think really buy a company with a more than three year investment horizon. Yeah, exactly. So I, I agree with you on like all those principles too, because, you know, I, I don't know if I'd really consider myself a value investor either, but yeah, I, I, I agree that I think everybody at the end of the day is looking for undervalued companies, right? So, I mean, if you buy a comp company <clears throat> and a stock, you would assume that you would think that it would go up, right? That's why you're buying it. And so, yeah, I mean, the general basis around value investing, I think, is just kind of present in every single um, every single uh, investor's mindset. Uh, the difference is, I think, that they focus a lot on the fundamentals and, and the pricing of the stock. But there's been like, you know, this tech boom and everything like that, uh, where it's if you follow the normal Warren Buffett method, it's been everything has been, I guess, extremely overpriced. And some might say that it's still even overpriced after this 20 or so percent uh, correction. Um, so, like, I guess, how do you, uh, you, you know, you were kind of saying that you look at like the underlying business. Like, do you analyze any of the financials or anything like that when you're looking at companies? Do you kind of, uh, I guess, use any of these uh, value investing principles or or metrics, kind of like uh, price to earnings ratio or anything like that? The first thing I do when I start to analyze a company is, um, I think this very few investors actually do it. I, I ran a poll in, on Twitter uh, some weeks ago and the results were a bit um, worrying, so to say. Like I read the, the 10K because it's basically the probably a document that you have all the relevant information. Like if you want to know what the business does, they basically tell you what they do. I don't think you'll find a better place to understand what they do than the management telling you what they actually do. And also it's, uh, sort of unbiased information because it's regulatory uh, regulatory feeling and they cannot obviously be too positive on, on what they think. So that's the first thing I do. And I obviously look at the, the financials because I think there's two parts to an investment. One is the, the numbers and the other one is the story. Uh, obviously, the, the story of the company ends up being reflected uh, on the financials. So... I think you need to look at the financials, then look at the story and try to guess where the financials might move uh, if the story is executed correctly. So that's sort of what I try to do. Obviously, it's not, it's not easy because the numbers are uh, obviously objective. You see what the numbers are and there's no like, you cannot make an opinion on that. It's what it is. But investing is all about the future. So you need to understand the story very well to to try to predict where those numbers are going to move. Yeah, I agree with you 100% there. So, uh, you know, that that's very interesting. And, and I read the 10Ks as well. Um, but I, I, I also like I like how they highlight that the risk se sections in there, right? Because I think every everybody kind of discredits that that risk portion in a 10k um where 
you know, sometimes when you look at a stock, uh, you know, people just really see like the bull arguments and don't really focus on, you know, what potentially could go wrong or, or, you know, what could change maybe your thesis. So when you're like looking at a company, do you like actively try to poke holes in, in your thesis? And uh, if so, like, how do you kind of go about that? Yes, I do. I also read the, obviously, I, I read the whole 10K. So I also read the the risks section. Uh, the, the problem about that section is that it's actually pretty boring because um, there are risks that are so obvious. They have to put them there, but they are pretty obvious. Like, I don't know, uh, if we stop selling, uh, our revenues will be impacted. Well, yeah, that's obvious. Like, if you don't, if you don't achieve more customers, your revenue is going to be impacted. But every once in a while in a 10K, you can find on the, on the risk section something that you would have overlooked just by reading information outside of the 10K. Um, so I think it's really important to, to go over all of that. And then I also try to read as many bare articles as I can find on the company. Uh, I will actually think of some of them. I would think that the bear case is very weak, but obviously others you get important risks that maybe you you had not considered. And I actually do that twice. Uh, the first thing that I do is is read the risks and the bear when I know what the company does. Obviously, when I um, when I already know what the company does, I read the risks and then I continue um, analyzing the company because I think it helps me be less biased like positively biased once i know the risks i know that i'm not going to read something of the bull case and magnify it because i'm going to say i'm going to know that there are risks behind that and then i read it just before starting the position i read them again just to see if i have uh, missed something i gotcha so are there any I, I guess specific sources that you use to to find some of these like bare arguments that that you kind of like ascribe by that you think you know, these people when breaking down a stock uh, generally give good bear arguments or are you just kind of, uh, I guess, more so crowdsource it on, on Google or something along those lines? I do it on, on Google. Actually, yeah. if you put, if you write sell and the ticker or something like that, you actually get access to a lot of, uh, of bear articles. Yeah, that's not surprising at all. So uh, yeah, there's always somebody with, with some headline, right? Where it's like, no matter what company, it's like either buy or, or sell right away. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, pretty interesting stuff. So um, I want to get into, I, I guess, a little bit about you being in Spain. So um, I know that it's, uh, you know, d investing in at least the United States has become like very popularized and, and is all over the media and everybody's kind of talking about inflation. But you mentioned earlier in this conversation that, uh, you know, stocks have kind of have a pretty negative connotation in Spain um, with Everything going on with like inflation, um, you know, I know it's drastically affecting me in the United States and I know it's, it's probably affecting you over in Spain as well. Has, has that per, uh, perception sort of changed? Uh, do you think that that conversation is kind of shifting where more people are getting involved in investing? Well, I think, I think it's, well, that's a great question. I think it's kind of... Um, it's kind of strange because it's difficult to explain to someone that they need to invest to beat inflation because normally in the years where you have high inflation, uh, investments are not doing very good. So it's not very intuitive, but I think you need to 
try to make people understand that investing is a hedge against inflation, but not specifically during the year where you have high inflation because it, it, let, it lets you build your wealth. So when you get to that year, your purchasing power actually has gone up. Maybe that year you suffer a drawdown in the, in the market because the market always suffers a drawdown when interest rates go up. And normally if you have high inflation, interest rates will go up. Um, so I think it's not changing here, the, the connotation about stocks. We actually got here, crypto was pretty popularized here, Bitcoin and everything, but stocks aren't. I think one of the reasons is that um, the, the Spanish stock market is not really performing well. And the stock market is only in the news when it's actually crashing. So then it's very difficult for someone to have a positive opinion on stocks when the, the only place where he or she sees the stock market is when it's crashing 30% or so. So that has not changed. I imagine that we could do a better, like a better task of educating people, for example, at university on personal finance. Here, there's no like personal finance education. Uh, nobody invests uh, for their retirement. Well, maybe some people do, but it's not the norm. People typically live here paycheck to paycheck and what they save, they live in the bank and they have the cash and that's it. Um, inflation here is a problem. I think uh, much like it's a much more dangerous problem than in the US actually. Uh, inflation in Spain has just reaccelerated this month. So it went down to 8.2% and now it's at 8.7. And um, the worst thing is that in the US you actually got some wage inflation, so to say, that counteracts it more or less. Uh, in Spain, the wages are not going up like since five years ago. So people are actually seeing how their their purchasing power is going down dramatically. Now, so be, because their their purchasing power is going down, uh, you know, I guess how is that kind of changing the everyday person? Like I know in the United States, we got a lot of people jumping from job to job. Uh, they called it the uh, great resignation where a lot of people went from, you know, one job to a new job uh, because the new job, usually you can kind of, uh, you have like a couple years experience. You could kind of, you know, make a, a jump to the next level and usually get a, a pretty big pay raise because, you know, they're always looking for good people. So um, that's kind of been a trend in the United States where a lot of people are kind of like jumping from job to job um seeking that that higher pay uh how are people in in spain kind of uh battling it now are are i mean you mentioned crypto and bitcoin earlier um are more people i guess trying to uh use that as savings technology or are uh people kind of doing the same trend in the united states as like jumping from job to job well i think here there there's a problem with uh, people starting to invest because um, a lot of them got interested on investing since the uh, the pandemic and then they saw the huge run and now they're seeing a, a huge drawdown so that's not the best scenario for people to actually trust uh, the stock market um so i think people are just here we, we also have the the behavior of people jumping from job to job uh, but i do see and i find this uh, kind of worrying that people I don't know if this is specific to Spain. 
are demanding like better working conditions, like working less or, or being more flexible, and at the same time um, earning more. So like making more from the job. So I think that's going to have a large impact on productivity if it's if it continues to to be like that. I was before uh, leaving my job to dedicate full time to investing. I was a consultant, and when I was like when I started, I knew that in being a consultant, I was going to work uh, more hours than my contract said. Like uh, it was like a, an unwritten clause in the contract. But now I actually see people going into consultancy firms and demanding like very uh, good, I don't know um, how to say it, like good conditions on their job. And I, I think it's obviously fair, but you cannot pretend to work less and make much more than someone who was working much more than you uh, made. So there, there's people jumping from job to job, but I don't think, I think the overall market is it's stalling. It's not easy to jump from one job to another one and get a raise in that process here in Spain. Yeah, so uh, it, it definitely is happening here in the United States too, where a lot of people are trying to fight for that. Uh, you know, uh, work-life balance where they want to work less, get paid more, uh, maybe work from home. You know, I work from home at my new job uh, that I started <clears throat> almost like half a year ago at this point. But um, yeah, so I mean, it, it's definitely, I think, a, a global issue. And it's like pr productivity is definitely not being helped, um, you know, from there. Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how this all plays out. Uh, I know that there's a lot of uh, speculation of potential more money printing or everything like that in the United States, um, which could affect the markets overall. But um, anyway, so when you look at companies um, and you kind of like have this overarching view of, you know, what, what's going on right now, um, not necessarily like taking a dive into like the macro environment or anything, but do you like kind of look at companies based on uh, you know, maybe the, the country that they're, they're based in, or does it, uh, do you like you primarily invest in like United States based companies or, um, you know, uh, I think it's always kind of interesting to talk to, to European investors to see like, you know, whether or not they're investing strictly in their home country or, or kind of how that process works. I typically invest in companies in the U S um, but this doesn't mean that they only operate in the U.S. Like uh, most of them have international revenue. So I think that where a company is listed, it says says little about uh, like the international presence of that company. So that's one thing. And then about macro, I think there's a a big difference between uh, knowing that macro impacts um, company fundamentals. This is actually uh, pretty straightforward. Like if, uh, if we have a recession, then companies that uh, are making money from the economy, uh, like from the rise of the economy are going to be impacted. But there's a huge difference between that and investing based on macro. I don't invest based on macro for, for several reasons. First, uh, I think it's hard to predict because you just you don't have to predict only like, for example, now, do I have to predict if there's a recession? Well, that's one part. But then you have to predict how severe it will be, how the government and the Federal Reserve uh, will react 
And then also um, markets are second order like tools. So you not only have to predict the recession, you have to uh, try to guess how the market will react to the recession. So I think it's quite um, impossible for me to guess all those things. So I try to look for companies that are resilient, so that are not going to get wiped wiped out in that recession. And also that they are uh, established and have good competitive positions because they actually, like recessions actually um, help these companies. Like think of all the big tech companies. If we have a recession now, uh, digital ads can be cyclical, e-commerce can be cyclical, whatever. But they are actually going to come out stronger because uh, all their competitors are probably in a much tougher position than them. So uh, I, I would make that distinction because um, macro is important, obviously. But I don't think that investing based on macro uh, will make you a lot of money over the long run. I think it also depends on your investment horizon, obviously. Like if you invest for the next year, then macro has been has like a very large importance in your investment process because you can actually suffer a 30, 40 or 50% rodan like we had in 2008. I think it was 55% or so. But if you invest in like five or 10 year horizon, then you're going to go through several cycles. You will go down with the downturn and then when the economy recovers, because I don't know, we have uh, a long history of uh, countries recovering from recessions um then you'll take advantage of that so that that's how i how i view it although i'm i i have companies that have exposure to europe and i think the situation in europe is much worse than in the us from a recession standpoint because we had much more dependency on on russia especially for energy and i think we are being impacted quite a bit yeah, no, I got you. And that all makes sense. And I, and I agree with you. I think, um, you know, to invest based on macro is kind of ignoring the underlying fundamentals of a company and kind of, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're investing in a business, right? But I think like macro is something that's something to be aware of, because I think like in certain environments, right, there's going to be some sectors that it doesn't matter what you buy that it or, you know, like, all tech, for example, at the beginning of COVID kind of went up, right? And there was like a few that that went up more than others and um, some boomed. And right now, like energy and oil stocks are doing really well because, you know, like like you said, like the kind of the dependency of energy and, and oil companies in uh, Europe that have made uh, these companies make more profit than, than normal, um, just strictly because, you know, they need to ship, ship out the oil and kind of... Uh, exit that that dependency from Russia. And uh, yeah, I mean, I just think like, you know, there, there's certain factors too that, that like can affect a company that maybe necessarily isn't based on their underlying fundamentals. But if you have a long, a long enough time horizon, those underlying fundamentals of the company will prevail and make that company more valuable. Um, so when you're kind of looking at or looking for companies, uh, do you, how do you, uh, I guess, find companies at all to even like start to even like read a 10K? Do you first start in sectors and then go deep into companies that, that you think? Or do you just kind of like, I don't know, find ideas uh, crowdsourcing through like social media or something along those lines? 
Well, I think it's probably a mix of everything. Um, for example, um, I'll get when I started researching ASML uh, in the semi semiconductor industry. To understand ASML, you have to go, so to say, through the rabbit hole, uh, and then you start seeing other companies. And I've also looked at the EDA companies such as Cadence and Synopsys. And I wouldn't have gotten to that to those companies if it wasn't for ASML. So I think that when I start researching a company in in any industry, you you sort of have to understand the industry well. So then you are aware of most of the companies that you see there. I mo I, I don't say okay. I want uh, exposure to uh, this industry, and then I start researching the individual companies. I think it's the other way around that I see a high quality company through social media or uh, doing some filters. Like I, I think that uh, excellent past performers are a good starting point to find future good performer, uh, performers. There's a kind of a mantra like uh, that past performance doesn't, uh, it's not indicative of uh, future performance. And I agree, obviously, the past does not portray the future to perfection. But if a high quality company has been a high quality company from uh, like for 10 years, probably the probabilities of it remaining a high quality company are much higher than a bad company uh, that you are like wishing for a turnaround now. Like turnarounds are very good because you can profit a lot. But they, I don't think that there's a high probability of, of enjoying a turnaround, especially inside high competitive markets. Because if a company has uh, performed really well during 10 years, that's probably because there's a competitive advantage that no, nobody is being able to match. Because if not, it, it wouldn't have performed that well. And if a company is not performing well during those 10 years, well, probably maybe the industry is not worth it, or maybe there are too many competitors that are eating into the into their their pie so that that's actually how i do it i think it's more from an individual company to the industry rather than the the other way around i think there are also exceptions because for example the semiconductor industry i think uh, it's it will be a very important industry in the future so i wanted to have exposure to that and then i started reading a lot about the semiconductor industry uh, made kind of like an industry map. And then from there, I started um, looking at those players that I thought were more interesting. I gotcha. And yeah, that, that makes sense. So, um, you know, we both, uh, we'll, we'll take a dive into the semiconductor industry in a second, but we're both on that, a platform called Common Stock. And uh, I've mentioned that platform quite a bit on this podcast because I think a lot of my my guests I, I've met them through there but I think one interesting aspect of that of that is that you can share your portfolio and kind of like upload um, upload uh, you know what what your holdings are and people can see you know when you're writing about these holdings like whether or not you hold them or not um, and so do you kind of use that where where you look at maybe, um, some other people that you follow, do you like look at their portfolios and get kind of ideas from there? Or um, is it just more so, I, I guess, like from Twitter or seeing names or seeing, you know, somebody put out content based on some company? I, I also look at that. I personally can't share my portfolio because it's European. 
and because I, I have it on the Giro that it's a Dutch uh, broker and the and the best anchor stock portfolio that is the private marketplace that I run. Obviously, I cannot share it for obvious reasons. Um, so I, I will look at that because I think common stock is a great place, uh, especially during a downturn because everyone gets so negative and you can see how people are panicking on on Twitter and actually people on common stock, you can see how they are focusing on what I believe is important. So I think it's quite aligned with with what I like, how I view investing. And in and through common stock, you can read about like read the some people's opinions. And if you feel that they are very aligned with what you do, it's great being able to look at the portfolio because maybe if you know that these people are looking for the same things that you tend to look when analyzing a company. Well, their portfolio is basically like a watch list because you know that they have looked for those common characteristics that you also look for. Yeah, I agree. And I think like, yeah, they're, they're, they're very positive too. Um, and I think like kind of like the long form and to see like, you know, whether or not you're, uh, you know, the long form of being able to write out your thesis and kind of, uh, you know, go into it deep that way, as well as like, you know, seeing, like you said, like, all right, well, if you have a stock on their watch list, you could see what this person's saying about um, that stock and, and other things like that. So I think it's a great tool. And I think like putting the face to the name and uh, kind of seeing the breakdown and not having that limited um, you know, the limited character amount, although like, you know, maybe you could do a Twitter thread or something, but I think, uh, you know, on, on common stock, it's more, yeah, like you said, aligned just for strictly investors. And I think that tool is, uh, you know, going to be very valuable here in the future. I don't personally have my portfolio, uh, connected, but, uh, I think I do have the ability cause I'm United or I'm in the United States, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you're the. I think that that's coming soon. I would assume, but I, I don't know for sure. Um, but I think, yeah, overall, great platform and uh, a lot of people on there as well. So if you're from Common Stock, go ahead and follow uh, Leandro here, and and he posts some great stuff on there as well. But I want to dive into um, the semiconductor industry. So you kind of uh, said it at the beginning that you've looked at this industry a little bit different then maybe you look at other companies and uh, you think that that industry in specific is going to be very important. Uh, why do you think that the semiconductor industry is going to be kind of important going forward? Well, I think it, you have, you only have to look at the trends. Uh, everyone uses uh, more technology each day. And it's not only that the people from developed countries uh, have more devices connected to the to the internet or more technological devices. Uh, for example, mm, I, ten years ago I had uh, a mobile phone, and now I have a mobile phone, an iPad, and a Mac. So that's that's three. Um, I also think there's a huge opportunity for technology to penetrate uh, emerging markets. For example, if you go to uh, certain parts of Asia or South America and obviously Africa, um, the tech penetration there is much, much lower and it's going to get there because it eventually, like, it's better for for the development of these economies. So I think technology is going to be huge in the future. 
uh, well, it's already huge now, but I think there's still a lot of runway for, for it to continue to penetrate uh, different countries. And semiconductors, it's like the, I don't know how to say, it's like the building blocks of technology. So if you really want to uh, take advantage of technology as a whole without needing to decide what, uh, if it's going to be AR, VR, or artificial intelligence or whatever, uh, you know that there's going to be a semiconductor chip behind that. So I think it's a, a great place. I think semiconductor, many semiconductor companies are diversified already just because they are in the semiconductor industry. I agree. And we, we kind of talked offline before we got on here, two of your holdings. So I want to kind of take a dive into some of those. Um, and obviously this isn't financial advice or anything like that. So, um, before we get into that, but you, you mentioned two of them, one is ASML holdings. And I think you've already kind of mentioned that previously. And the other is, uh, TXN, which I believe is the Taiwan Semiconductors. No, it's Texas Instruments. Oh, Texas Instruments. Yeah, that's right. Um, so let's get into uh, ASML. Why do you like uh, ASML and uh, what kind of caught your eye about this company that made you want to invest in it? Okay, so for, for the people that don't know, ASML basically is an equipment manufacturer. So they they build the, the systems, the lithography systems that later uh, foundries such as TSMC, Intel, or Samsung buy to manufacture the, the chips. Um, I think it's, they, they have like, they've been, if I'm not mistaken, they were founded in 1984. It was like a spin-off between uh, ASMI, that was ASM um, International, I think, and Philips. And, and it was like incorporated in in the Nether, the Netherlands. And since that moment moment, they started betting like very like huge on lithography. Um, back in the day, nobody knew if lithography was going to be like the best method to to print the the patterns on the on the wafers. But um, they they bet huge for it, so they have like. Um, almost four decades of of research and development in that area, and they actually got it right because lithography is now what the like the most used technology to to print the the chip patterns on the wafers, and they basically have two types of machines. One is deep uh, ultraviolet. Uh, that I think that one goes. Uh, to the, if I'm not mistaken, seven or five nanometer node. So it's pretty small for, for a feature in a semiconductor chip. And they have some competition there uh, with Nikon and Canon, but it's basically they have like an 80% market share. And then they have the EUV systems that is extreme ultraviolet. Uh, those machines are able to print patterns that go below the, um, the five nanometer node. I think they go up to the three nanometer node. So uh, if you want to, basically, if you want to make the most advanced chips, um, then you have to use uh, EUV. That's what, uh, for example, Apple's M1 chip, it's manufactured by TSMC using EUV technology by, by ASML. And nobody is even close 
to uh, getting sort of a machine that, uh, that is able to do that. And ASML is already working on the next one. So um, I think that the moat is, is huge. Uh, obviously, pricing power is, you could argue that pricing power is infinite because uh, if you want that machine, then you only have one, one player to go to. Uh, the same way that there are not many customers who buy those machines. So that's somewhat a risk for ASML because they have a substantial customer concentration risk. I think 60% uh, of the revenue comes from three customers. They don't say which customers they are, but probably TSMC, Intel, and Samsung. And I think they have a, a, a very wide mode. And I, the most interesting thing about ASML is that even though they manufacture systems, uh, like to give a bit of, of context, these systems cost around 150 million euros each. So um, there are huge machines that they have to, uh, like they send to Taiwan in, in, by, in parts, in airplanes, uh, specifically to send the machine. And uh, the best thing is that the business is CapEx light. Well, not, not very, very CapEx light, but I think uh, uh, the CapEx over revenue from the last years have been around 9%. And that's only possible because the CapEx is borne by the suppliers uh, of ASML. So ASML has uh, hundreds of suppliers and then they basically, they decide, they design the system and they put all the pieces together but all the all, all the pieces, all the research and development for the pieces are borne by the suppliers. So it's a it, it's a I think it's a rare combination finding a company that actually does physical goods and so advanced and seeing such uh, low capex. Yeah, that's awesome. And you made a lot of great points, and it seems like they have a, like a pretty good moat and everything like that. So there's a lot of positives I can see from this business, but. Uh, as, as we kind of stated earlier, you, you look at like the bear cases. So um, what are some of the bear cases that are for ASML and like, how would you, I guess, poke some holes in them while you're uh, going through them? Yeah. So the, I, I would say that the main bear case is one that can, can't be predicted and it's the geopolitical tensions. Uh, most of the like 30% of, I think 30% of ASML's revenue comes from Taiwan. Uh, we don't know what will happen there, but ASML is already forbidden uh, of exporting the EUV systems to China because the US obviously doesn't want China to have the most advanced technology. So if something were to happen in Taiwan, if China were to take over or whatever, then ASML's exports of EUV systems were, will basically be banned to, to those countries. And that would be a, a huge short-term shock. But on the other hand, due to the geopolitical tensions, a lot of governments are trying to make, like invest in in-house production, like domestic production of semiconductor chips. And that would be obviously a tailwind for, for ASML because now TSMC is opening a fab uh, in Arizona. And obviously that fab is going to be full of ASML systems. And ASML is going to benefit if Intel goes to Europe and if TSMC goes to, to the US. I think India is also 
planning to make significant investments, although I think it's on the design side more than the domestic manufacturing. Um, the other other risks, I think, are now there's a lot of talk about uh, double double ordering in the semiconductor industry because there's like the shortage uh, during COVID has been so strong that a lot of foundries are supposedly um, asking for more systems like to meet their future capacity. Mm, ASML has a huge backlog and there's uh, some people are worried that if the semiconductor shortage like uh, stops and we have a semiconductor cycle, and then a lot of these orders of systems are going to be canceled. I think that's a risk for the uh, DUV side of the business, for the deep ultraviolet, but I don't think it's a risk at all for the extreme ultraviolet because um, I don't think Intel, Samsung or TSMC would like to cancel an order for that they made one year ago and they still don't have the system. Uh, first, because they prepay for these systems. So ASML has such a pricing power and because they're the only one that they get prepayments, but it's not from the price. Basically, they get payments made by the customers to secure the demand of the, uh, to secure the supply of the systems. Uh, so I, I don't think that a customer that has already paid will say, no, I don't want it anymore. And then you go back to the end of the queue while your competitors are getting stronger. It was actually one of the problems that Intel had that they didn't compete with TSMC in the higher, like the high-end chips. And that's why the, the first system of the next generation uh, is going to Intel because Intel has paid a substantial amount of money. They, they didn't disclose it to secure the supply. So they know that to remain competitive, they need this system. And uh, if they cancel an order, they are risking remaining uncompetitive for the next year or year and a half. That's another risk. And then actually there's the, the obvious risk that all semiconductor company has, that is what happens if we, ha if we have a cycle. And I liked how the ASML CEO uh, laid it out in the recent shareholder meeting when he got asked exactly this question, like what would happen to the company if now we have a, a downturn in the semiconductor industry? And he said that they are building the company on a 10 year view. So if there are cycles, well, there will be cycles. There's, there's nothing they can do, but they don't plan. They don't make their capacity planning thinking that there will be a cycle in the next year, or maybe that they will be a cycle in the next uh, three years. They don't care. They, they expand capacity because they think that in 10 years they're going to need it for sure. So that's why they do things. And I would say that those are the, um, the main risks of the, of the company. Yeah, I mean, I think those are all great. And I think your explanation of them are, are great. And, and some of them, too, are, you know, like you said, like out of the, the company's control. And I think it's, too, it's like it's, it's pretty interesting that it's not just like the semiconductor industry. It's like a step back of like manufacturing semi semiconductors. So uh, that's definitely one that, that uh, piques my interest and in it. it might be something that I look into, too. So uh, I appreciate the breakdown. I think you, you know, you broke that stock down uh, very eloquently. Now let's get into the the next one that, that we discussed was the Texas Instruments ticker TXN. So what caught your eye about uh, this company and what do you like about it? 
Well, Texas, uh, the um, the EUV systems that we talked about uh, in ASML, those are uh, used primarily to to make um, digital chips because digital chips follow Moore's law. So they typically need, it's not a physical law, it's just like an unwritten rule that the whole semiconductor industry tries to comply with. Uh, Moore's law states that uh, every two years, the number of transistors that fit in a chip has to double while the price has to be cut in half. Um, up to now, uh, with thanks to companies, well, th thanks to the industry as a whole, but EUV has been very important in being able to comply with Moore's law because it has made the ability to put like uh, make smaller features so you can fit more transistors in in every chip. But then there there are another kind of chip that actually when when you like listen to the name you'd think that it's a less advanced digital chip but it's like they're not related at all and it's the analog chips so analog chips um can read uh so to say a continuous variable so for example the uh, tire pressure in a car you need an analog chip to read that uh to make that reading because a digital chip uh, works in binary so you can only say or one or zero so it's impossible to measure a tire pressure with ones or zeros. Um, so they are used mostly for sensors. Um, yeah, it, it's mostly mostly sensors and for for communicating like the real world, transforming it into technology. So for example, we following the example of the tire pressure. If you have a um, a flat tire, then the pressure will go down obviously the analog chip will read that pressure and then will um, translate that into a signal that a digital chip can read. And that's when the digital chip will tell you in your screen, hey, your tire pressure is low. So they are more like, instead of substitute, they are more complements than substitutes. And Texas Instruments is basically the leading manufacturer of analog chips. The good thing about analog chips, and I here I go back to the... Um, to Capex is that if you are um, if you look at TSMC's Capex spending, it's around twenty or twenty something percent of revenue um, because they need always to have the latest system to make the most advanced chips. That's basically how they compete fav favorably against competitors. But in the analog industry, analog chips don't follow Moore's law. So then you can have a machine that was uh, manufactured 40 years ago that is still working and you're still building chips on it. So CAPEX is much lower. I think the last three years, uh, Texas Instruments has averaged uh, CAPEX around 8 or 9%, which is very, very low if you compare it to a, to a manufacturer of DHL chips. And they have very, very good management that has been able to to put some uh, very strong competitive advantages. So that's what I like. And obviously, with the Internet of Things, autonomous driving, artificial intelligence, those are uh, huge tailwinds for analog chips because all of them uh, are like a source of communication with the real world. And the only way that you're going to achieve that is with analog chips. So that's why I found it. It's actually going out a bit 
from, I think ASML gives a good exposure to digital chips. Uh, and I think I also wanted to have exposure to, to analog chips. Yeah, that's great. So, <clears throat> so, I mean, it seems like they're, they're both like kind of in the same sector, but they do very different things, which is interesting. So you're not kind of like pointing to, you know, necessarily, I guess like one, you're, you're getting two different aspects of the sector and trying to get those two, um, I guess, big players in there. And one, uh, you know, ASML seems like the only player in the manufacturing uh, business. So that, that it seems like both like, you know, awesome plays to me. Um, but, you know, what are some of the uh, negative and, and bare arguments of uh, TXMC? Because um, I know you said that they're kind of like the big players of are, are not TXMC, I'm sorry, TXN. Um, what are some of the negatives uh, as far as that, that one goes? Okay, so I think um, one of the bare arguments is actually I think there's a bit of key man risk because Rich, uh, like Rick Templeton, has been um, its CEO for since 2004. He's already, I think, 65 or so. He actually hasn't served as CEO uh, like on a continuous basis because he left in 2018. But his successor, um, well, had a scandal that technically violated the company uh, policies. And then uh, Templeton actually came back to, to lead the, the company again. And I think he's, he has been really, really important uh, in what Texas Instruments is today, especially because Texas Instruments has changed business lines like six times. Like they do analog now, but they have uh, during the like their path. It's I don't I don't know. I think it's close to being a a one hundred year company, uh, but they have changed like uh, several times uh, their business lines to adapt to what to the trends that they were seeing. I think that management is really important there because they have to be actually actually the ones to see were the future, like predicting the future or more or less trying to guess it to change what the company is doing or it's not doing. I think I don't expect a change in business line for the next 15 years at least. But I think it's it's great having a management team that is able to pivot when something's not going well and they have demonstrated to do it. And they are also great capital allocators um, because, for example, Texas Instruments is the typical company that only buybacks stock when the price is low. So throughout 2020, they, they purchased a bit during COVID. But in 2021, they obviously didn't purchase anything because the stock ran up a lot. Um, I think that's one of the of the risks. There, there's also here the, the risk of competition is also kind of higher than in ASML's case because they do have competitors. Their main competitor is Analog Devices that has uh, just merged with uh, Maxim Integrated. So now Texas Instruments had a market share of 20% of the industry and Analog, industry, analog Devices had um, around 8%. But after the merger with Maxim Integrated, that's going to go up to 13% or so. So... Um, 
competitors are getting closer, but it's true that the the only way that they have to get closer is um, through acquisition, like in organic, uh, inorganically, and and I think that is eroding their their competitive advantages with respect to Texas Instruments. And I would actually say that they are going to go into a huge in the with respect to what they were used to in a huge capex uh, spending because uh, they think that they have to expand capacity quite substantially to meet the demand for the next 10 years so it's also a bit of a risk because they are going to do a lot of like being, they're going to invest a lot more and maybe if that capacity doesn't come then obviously the the income statement and the balance sheet is going to be impaired yeah, I mean, I agree with you there. So that's uh, this is a pretty good risk, and I and I really like the way you break it down. So um, you know, looking at the positives and kind of understanding the full business, uh, it kind of takes understanding you know the the full product as well, right? So um, yeah, like good on you for breaking those down, and I think like kind of diving into the mindset of investors, like how they look at uh, companies, uh, is really interesting. And I think the way that you broke down you know, not only the, the company, um, you know, maybe some personnel factors on the last one, but you also look at, you know, the, <clears throat> the positives of the product and the underlying business, which is awesome. Um, so um, with that, we'll, we'll ask you a, a couple final questions and then we'll get into one question that I crowdsourced from, from Twitter to, to close it out. But um, so the two questions that I've been asking every guest is, uh, you know, right now with, uh, in a very inflationary time, like how would you kind of uh, convince or try to, uh, you know, tell your friends or family that, you know, maybe you should start looking into investing? Would you like even recommend that right now? Or would you just kind of, uh, I guess, like leave that conversation for, for another time? Well, I think it's a, it's a good time to start looking at investing if you are not. Uh, I think it's it's very easy to to convince someone plotting some numbers, uh, you can like y- your time to, to make income uh, is actually limited. If you work in a nine five, uh, you cannot work um, 24 hours a day to double your income. Uh, that's obviously impossible. So you have to kind of find a way to um, grow your income that doesn't require of, of all of your time. Uh, especially under an inflationary environment. So, for example, if I get a friend and he's making exactly the same that last year, or maybe he got a raise, but a 5% raise that doesn't offset inflation, then I would ask him to look at what he saved last year in that same month and what he saved this year, just to see, like, he would be... You, you can quickly see how your purchasing power is going, uh, like it's eroding because you are buying the same goods, but it's costing a lot more. And I think that would be easy to, um, to like, it would, it would be easy to convince someone using that. I think the, the largest hurdle would be to the, the negative connotation of stocks in Spain. I don't think I would be able to actually, um, convince someone using a Spanish index. Maybe I have to use uh, the S&P 500 or or the NASDAQ because if not, they're going to be afraid that they're going to lose even more purchasing power. 
Yeah, that's great. That's great stuff. And I agree with you there. I think like just really just diving into the numbers just to show like, hey, like, you know, you're, you're losing all this, this purchasing power and that at the end of the day is what money is. Um, so yeah. Okay. So then you kind of convince them, like, you know, you, you show them the reason why, um, and, and how to, um, you know, the, some of the benefits of investing and then how would you, I guess, suggest for them to get started? Would you tell them right away to maybe pick individual stocks or would you kind of suggest something similar to what you did and just, uh, go straight into ETFs? No, I would say directly go to index funds, uh, especially because I know uh, a lot of my friends or family have nine, like nine fives. And it's it's pretty difficult to uh, research individual companies if you have like a full time job, like you can't do it, obviously, but uh you first you have to build the knowledge and i think that takes a lot of time so i would definitely recommend starting with with index funds and maybe just stick to index funds uh, especially because it's very difficult to to build a conviction on a company and uh, individual stocks are a, a lot more volatile than than index funds so i think uh, there are two parts to investing. Uh, if you invest in individual stocks, one is investing in the right companies and the second part is actually holding them uh, while they execute and they compound capital for you. And I think volatility makes the second part very difficult if you are emotional because it can actually lead you to sell a company that is actually posting 20% returns of, on capital with your money. So... Uh, I think an index fund makes number two very easy, like the second part of holding uh, for many years. I actually never, since I've been investing in, in index funds, I never mm, felt the need, like, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I, I never suffered volatility, really. Like, even if it was mm, 20% down the index, I, I never thought that it would not go, uh, that it would not be better. I think there's upside in in the individual stocks with respect to an index. But if you can't handle volatility or you don't think that you are going to be able to build your conviction, then indexes are the way to go. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think like just researching into companies is very big and like trying to figuring that out, um, you know, helps your conviction. But yeah, if you don't really have an opinion on a company, then it's uh, it's tough to weather some of those storms of like some of that volatility and things like that too. So uh, I I normally recommend that too, and I even recommend to people some of these uh, you know robo investing apps too. I don't know if they're they're common in mm-hmm. Spain, but just to get started, that it does something for you, and you don't even have to even really think about it. Um, and uh, some people enjoy that, and then some people it kind of starts them going, and then you know like you and I just start to dive into individual companies and, and move it a little bit further in advanced. But uh, I, th- I think that the most important thing for, for individual investors is to realize that the, that their edge is not informational. You're not going to have more information than uh, a hedge fund that manages uh, 10 billion. Uh, and it's also not one of skill. You, you don't have to think that you are the most intelligent person in the market because Maybe if you, even if you are, because that's not realistic to think. I think the, the edge is more emotional and on a time horizon because 
professional investors have to prove every year that they were able to outperform. Individual investors don't need to prove that. And that's a huge advantage because you can actually not act based on price. While many professional managers are forced to act based on price if they want to keep the um, assets under management where they are. So I think the professional managers' incentives are not aligned with long-term investing and there's an opportunity there for the individual investor to, to take advantage of. Yeah, I agree too. So um, yeah, I think everybody has the capability to kind of learn some of this stuff by themselves and and kind of figure it out too. And however much you want to dive into it, whether it's like individual companies or just index funds, I think, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you can definitely do it on your own if you'd like. Um, it's just, you know, the willingness to do it too. So um, yeah, so I, I teased it right before we kind of got into these last two questions. But we did get one uh, crowdsource question. Uh, it was from Paul, who, who's been on the uh, podcast before, and uh, Connor at Investment Talk, um, Paul Sierra, and and uh, and Connor, who's at Investment Talk, asked for your favorite Spanish recipe. And we kind of went back and forth, and I thought like maybe it's paella, but uh, it doesn't seem like it's that. So. What is your uh, favorite Spanish recipe and kind of describe it for us? So it's actually um, rice with seafood. This can sound as paella, but it's not paella. <laughs> so in Spain, there's like a huge debate. Um, I don't know. There, there was a, a um, chef from the UK. I don't remember right now his name uh, that he like went on a program and said, look, I'm doing a paella and he put like lots of stuff in there in that rice and everyone in Spain like went crazy like no that's not a paella um, but you can call it how you want but it's not so there's like a misunderstanding in Spain because everyone that uh, everything that is rice with something is called paella because it's done on a recipe that is called paella uh, but the truth is that uh, the true paella that is made in Valencia uh, has like a maximum of 10 ingredients and you cannot go out of those ingredients. So that's why I say that it's rice with seafood. I, ca I could call it like a seafood paella, but it actually, if someone Spanish uh, sees this, maybe they'll, they'll go crazy. Uh, so that, you know, when you, when you come to Spain and you see like in Madrid that they are trying to sell you a paella, you can tell the guy that that's not a paella. Probably he won't understand and he'll sell you the same uh, dish, but yeah, I would say it's rice with seafood, and I actually have no clue of how to do a good one. So <laughs> I have to go to restaurants to 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 eat that. That's hilarious, but it's yeah, it seems like that's that's kind of a, a heated and debated topic. Is like what is actually a paella, which is awesome. But uh, yeah, I mean, in, in the United States, I, I had no idea, and it seems like you know, like you said, in, in Madrid, it, it might be more of like a touristy thing. Is that kind of uh, right? Like maybe you go to the bigger cities, you'll get paella that's not necessarily paella. Yeah. Yeah, like if you go to Madrid, if you have rice with whatever things that they have, but it's done in a paella, they'll they'll say it's a paella because all the tourists are going to understand what they like, what they are ordering. If you go like I'm from originally from Murcia, that it's just below Valencia in the Mediterranean. If you go to this part of Spain, you'll never see the name paella. You'll see like rice with this, rice with this. They'll they'll be made on a paella, but it's not the ingredients. So it 
there's a huge difference there. I got you. That's awesome. So, uh, so yeah, I guess when you go to Madrid or some of these other big cities, do you, you avoid a paella at all costs because of that? Yep. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I tend to actually in, in Madrid, I tend to avoid every restaurant that, that have uh, a photo of the dish in the menu because I think like probably the photo looks uh, 20 times better than what they are going to serve you. And uh, and even the photo doesn't look good. So um, I would recommend if you are if you are coming to to Spain uh, to ask someone that is Spanish for recommendation from restaurants because actually the difference. For example, I I live in Madrid. I'm originally from the Mediterranean, but I live in Madrid. The difference between going to a restaurant like that is not for tourists and going for one that is for tourists is huge both in quality and price, like the tourist restaurant is going to be much more expensive and the quality is going to be much lower. So I would recommend asking before going to those restaurants. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I guess if I ever venture out to Spain, I'll be sure to, to hit you up and, uh, and ask for some uh, restaurant recommendations because I, I feel the same way too, like here in the United States, right. And like some of the big cities, uh, you know, you'll definitely get the, the tourist trap, uh, kind of restaurants that aren't necessarily as good as like, you know, maybe some of the smaller local places too. So I think, yeah, it's- I think, I think a good way to identify those restaurants, if it's someone is outside trying to lure you in, like to tell to, like asking you, do you want to have dinner? Then that's always, that's always a bad sign because <laughs> that they are, they are searching for tourists probably. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of like a, a European thing, it seems like. I don't know if that's like super common in the United States. At least I haven't seen it too often. But like when I went to I went to Greece and we would walk like in Santorini, walk uh, from our hotel to the beach. Uh, There's always people outside searching. And those are the ones that were never very good. And then we we were staying at a small like kind of mom and pop hotel. And the guy like drove us to to one restaurant that he's at the locals eat at. And it's the best meal I've ever had. So, uh, yeah, I kind of agree with that point, too. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, Why don't you tell everybody like kind of what you got going on and where they can find you? Okay, so um, I'm the um, like leading contributor to Best Tanker Stocks, that is a, a Seeking Alpha marketplace. Uh, we basically try to um, to search for companies that are already established and that have still long runways ahead of them, and by like because they are established, they suffer somewhat reduced volatility with respect to other to other companies. So that the name best anchor stocks comes from the fact that they help anchor your portfolio without um, giving up too much um, too much returns. So yeah, that, and they can find me also on Twitter um, hashtag like uh, at investquotes and the same at in common stock. Perfect. Well, everybody go check him out on Twitter, Common Stock, and uh, Seeking Alpha as well. So thank you so much for your time and uh, uh, look forward to keep interacting with you. And maybe we'll have you back on down the road too. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good one.